Why, hello and welcome. Welcome to the Peer Pressure Podcast. I am Diane, sometimes known as Diane Kamikaze, and I am your host. The reason why I do this podcast is because I like to say I am a champion of heavy music. I've always found my favorite songs since I was a young kid had riffs, hooks, were either metal, hardcore, hard rock, or punk, or something fairly aggressive in attitude and sound. And I am all about appreciating the people that keep that world going, whether they're musicians, webmasters, other podcasters, record label and festival owners. It's important to me to recognize what these people do in that realm of music. So I am here to bring them to you in a different context, more than a Wikipedia entry or a press release, a little more personal and a lot more fun. I'm a rocker for life, and I hope these episodes do make a difference. Send me feedback at diane at wfmu.org. And my Facebook page is Diane Kamikaze Farris, Rocker for Life. Like my page there, and I will keep everybody updated on podcast episodes in that space. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned. And today I get to talk to Jake Burns, singer and guitarist, best known as frontman and founder of Belfast's Stiff Little Fingers. Interview was recorded September 28th, 2017 and first aired on WFMU October 12th, 2017 with a full musical array around it so if you want to hear the entire archive complete with some stiff little fingers music and the music that jake talks about in this interview go to the wfmu website to the search and put in interview with jake and you will find that archive at the time of this podcast airing i believe stiff little fingers will have just finished up some swedish tour dates they toured the U.S. earlier in 2017, and we're going to catch up with Jake now. Congratulations. It's 40 years. We formed in, uh, I believe, April 77, set our first show in August. So I read online that the packaging, the original packaging for the suspect device cassette caused some panic to record labels at some point. Yeah, we're never actually sure how much of that is actually true. Um, you know, it was, uh, it, but yeah, we we did hear. You know, we heard stories that uh, because it was it, the, the original packaging was it was made to look like a cassette bulb, which was the thing that the the IRA were using a lot of the time. They were using letter bulbs. Um. And our manager, our manager worked for a, a national newspaper, and I mean, there's no way on earth you could have actually mistaken this thing for a an actual. Uh, letter bomb that would have been crass. I mean, it was a black and white photograph, so you know it, it obviously wasn't uh, it wasn't a letter bomb. But I think you know, given the given the climate of the times and the fact that these things turned up, uh, you know, obviously unsolicited in uh, in plain plain brown envelopes, as the legend goes, sort of you know, with a Belfast postmark. Some people were kind of nervous when they opened it and saw you know they saw the picture, and I don't think their brain put two and two together and therefore. So we did hear a story that, that you know at least one record company. Uh, uh, had to ask for a replacement because they threw the original in a bucket of water. Um, I, I, and the, I, I, the reason I doubt that is because obviously in, in later years we signed to 
uh, a number of record labels, and so I've been you know, very familiar with their offices. I've never seen a bucket of water sitting around in any of them. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask you that too. Like, do you think? Hmm, it's still a good story, though. It is a good story. I've never let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> <laughs> when the band started, obviously, you were just talking about the IRA and the the terrible conflict that was going on in Ireland. What was the 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 reason? that you started writing music? Was it as protest or a distraction? What was going no, on? Well, yeah, just distraction more than anything else, Don, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, we were we were all music fans, and, uh, you know, the, the, the punk rock, particularly when it came along, was kind of ideally suited for us. We were at the right age, and, uh, you know, we were all, we'd been music fans long enough that we were bored with what was happening. Um, so you know, it was it was the ideal kind of outlet for us. But no, it was never it was never written as a you know as a uh, to make a point or whatever. I mean, we we basically we wrote music because it was fun to do. And uh, when we actually got around to writing songs, it was it was only natural to to write about what you knew. And you know, it, I mean, it's much the same way as the Clash were writing songs about you know their lives in London. Um, we just basically wrote what we saw around us. And on you know, fortunately or unfortunately, what we saw around us was. As you mentioned, sort of, you know, a, 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 a political conflict. You know, it's like that, that was really all we were doing. And it's one of those things that you know, people have said to us, you know, did it did it feel cathartic in any way or whatever? And it didn't really. I mean, it, it just felt normal. It felt natural. That was what everyday life was to us. You know, it, it meant that you know, well, first of all, it meant that no bands would come and play because they were either scared or they couldn't get insurance or whatever. But you know, just in terms of day to day life, it meant things like. You know, your bus home from work would be cancelled because there'd been a riot on the right, or or there was, uh, you know, there was a bomb scare that meant uh, things were diverted and places were shut down. And uh, I mean, to be honest, there were more bomb scares than there were actual bombs. I mean, obviously there were there were bombs as well. Um, but you know, it it, it it really was. I mean, you know, people say to you, so you know, it must have been terrifying. It must have been, you know, in, in, in equal forms terrifying or and or exhilarating. And the, the truth of the matter is, it was boring. I mean, it was really, really boring because uh, the city centre itself was closed every night from like six thirty, seven o'clock. Mm. They had a, a, a ring of security gates that that surrounded the entire city centre, and they they locked them at seven o'clock at night. Um, so you couldn't get, you know, if you wanted to go to the cinema or whatever, you couldn't because you couldn't get into the centre of town. Mm. Um, it was, you know, it was just, it was, it, it was really just tedious more than anything else. That was kind of the life I knew. You know. You've been touring consistently for years yeah do you play similar size venues all over no i mean you know obviously you're more popular in in certain territories than you are in others so you know here we'll play you know clubs of like sort of 500 to a thousand people depending on 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 the time in the uk we play um it generally they'll start about the same about sort of depending on where you are start about 500 600 but they'll go up to two three thousand depending on you know the, the size of the city you're in and stuff i mean that's that's fairly consistent we don't do much bigger than that we just did uh like the 40th because obviously this being an anniversary tour we just did the 40th uh show in back in belfast and that that was big that was over five thousand yeah i guess you can get you can say that you know worldwide it goes from anywhere to, to 500 to five thousand you know so that's sort of neck of the woods then what what after the tour are you planning to write yeah i mean i've already started work uh in, in terms of writing for the next record um i mean it's one of the things it's, it, it's not a you know it's it's, it's not a sort of, it's not a process you can put a time limit on um, obviously, used to in the past when you had record companies breathing down your neck, and and I think that's why 
you know, bonds end up putting out. Well, I mean, it, I guess it depends how you react to deadlines, really. Um, you know, you, you can sometimes do some of your best work with, a, you know, with a deadline breathing down your neck. But um, we're we're in the in the lucky position of having been do, doing it for so long. You know, nobody's actually panting at the panting at the, the pulling at the leash to sort of get another record straight away. So we can take our time and we can sort through material and reject stuff. I mean, we took. Not not intentionally, but we did take like about ten years between the last two records. Yes. Um, mainly, mainly because I mean, after five, four or five years, I had actually got enough material for a record. I just didn't think it was good enough, and so I was, you know, I was able to take that decision and say to the band, you know, I, I, I want to scratch these songs and, and kind of start again. I, mean, I think we kept we kept one of them and, and we kept some ideas from from other bits and pieces, but it meant that I was able to sit down and actually write what you know felt to me like a much stronger record. And you know that's that's kind of a lucky position to be in, and obviously that you know um, it, it's one of those it's one of the strange dichotomies of the music business at the moment is that you know, the internet and, and and digital downloading and whatever um, has led to people not buying records in such huge numbers, which means that you know um, although we don't make uh, any money effectively really out of making records anymore, they're just a tool to advertise. But um, it, you know it, it means that touring is your your main source of income. So you know, again, it sounds it sounds a strange thing to say, but it actually frees you up to be to be more discerning in, in what you actually you know let through quality control on the record because you're not in such a mad rush to make a record. That was what I was going to ask. Is it necessary to make records? And then you sort of answer that by saying it's something to to sell when you're on. It's the an road. Adver- I mean, it's an advertising deal. I, mean, I think it also, you know, it keeps you relevant. I mean. You know, if you're writing, particularly a band like ourselves that, that, that write, reacts and writes to what's going on around them, the, the audience has to appreciate the fact that you're commenting on stuff, and uh, you know that, that that like I said helps keep you relevant. Personally, as an artist, are you still drawn to or driven to write music? I think, I mean, basically, I'm a songwriter. It's what I do, and it's just natural as breathing. So, you know, even if I didn't have the outlet of the band, I would still be doing it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky as much as I have the outlet of the band that people actually get to hear it. Um, but, you know, even if I was just writing songs to get things off my chest and, and play them to my wife and cats, then that would, that would, I'd still be doing it, you know? <laughs> well, good. That's, what, that's exactly what I, I wanted to know. Are there bands out there that you like that are newer bands that have sort of picked up the uh, the the punk torch more or less? You know, that that's always a difficult question to answer simply because I actually don't go and see as many bands as I probably should do. Um, mm-hmm. Because we spend so much time on the road that any period I get at home, uh, the last thing in the world I want to do is go to a club and watch a band. Um, so, you know, um, uh, it, it's a strange thing to say, but actually my wife's probably better qualified to answer that question than I am. She and her friends go to more shows than I do. <laughs> I think the minute you start, you start picking bands, there's almost an implied criticism of other bands that you don't mention. So it's, it's okay. Well then, so let's go to maybe relevant but older. What about like a couple of, to you, the most important songs in punk history? I mean, in terms of importance, I mean, if you're talking in terms of kick-starting the whole thing, then obviously you'd, you'd look at, from a British point of view, you'd look at a song like Anarchy in the UK, which, you know, uh, mainly more for the Ferrari that was around the Sex Pistols than the actual song itself. Um, you know, between that, and also followed it up with God Save the Queen in the Jubilee year. I mean, you could, so, you know, that sort of, that drew a lot of, a lot of people out of the woodwork who were like, sort of, you know, so fed up with the status quo. Like, this is fantastic. This is, you know, this is like, so 
heart, and this is a, a middle finger up to everything that's been said. Yeah, I mean, just in terms of outrage, you would look at those. In terms of songs that uh, that articulated anything, then you know, you'd look at things. Then I'd really look at the Clash because they, they to me were like a, a Dema- real to Damascus moment in terms of this could be actually worth a bit more than um, you know just. Uh, like I said, just outrage. And, and when they wrote something like Career Opportunities, which really summed up what a lot of people were going through in Britain at the time. At the time, the unemployment rate in mainland Britain was uh, 1 in 10. Um, and in fact, in Northern Ireland, it was 1 in 3. So uh, a song like Career Opportunities, which really summed up just how little there was on offer for, for young people at the time, was, was pretty groundbreaking because you know, nobody had really written, nobody had written protest songs since, since Dylan. Of course, John Peel championed Stiff Little Fingers early on. Do you have any recollection of him that you can share? Yeah, John was, I mean, hugely, hugely influential. Um, in fact, I would argue he was the single most important person on the British music scene from the late 60s right through until he passed away. Um, just about the number of you know number of bands he championed. I mean, he basically gave radio sessions to everybody from Pink Floyd up to Stiff Little Fingers and beyond. Um, and so I don't think you can overestimate his importance, but I mean, one story that you know, sadly he's no longer with us. So, you know, hopefully his family won't mind my sharing. But um, when we were initially approached by Island Records, we were still working in, in Belfast. And as I said, you know, bear in mind that the, the unemployment rate was one in three at the time. And Island Records flew us over. We demoed some recordings for them, and basically they green lighted the whole thing. Said they wanted to sign the band, told us to quit our jobs, move to London. And so we did. We quit our jobs. We invite the move when they changed their minds. So you know, now we're in, unemployed in a place where only you know two out of three people can get a job. Wow. And uh, uh, John heard about this and actually contacted our manager, but very much sort of on the quiet. And uh, basically said to him, I believe the exact quote was something along the lines of, you know, sort of, I'm not, I'm not a wealthy man, but if I can, you know, if I give you five hundred pounds, will that help keep the band afloat? Um, you know, quite why he did that when we only made one single at that point, I really don't know. But mm. I think you know that's a that's kind of a mark of the man that he really you know loved loved music and loved new music so much that when he saw a band that he actually believed in, um, effectively being mistreated by the record business, he was willing to step in and, and offer what you know. I mean, I think the at the time was a lot of money, um, and you know I think my weekly wage at the time was thirty pounds, so five hundred quid was was huge. That would have kept us afloat for a couple of months easily. Wow. Um, and, you know, for him, we'd never met him at that point. We'd, all we'd done was send him a record in the mail. So, you know, I think that's kind of a, a measure of the market. I'm at, really. That's amazing. And, yeah, he's he set, set the bar for so much in terms of radio and, and exploring in music. Um, yeah. I mean, so, I mean it's, it was so enthusiastic about finding new stuff. I mean, almost to the point that it made your head spin. Um, you know, when he, when he sort of just sort of found us and started championing us, and you know, I think we'd recorded like one PO session at that point, and we hadn't long come across to London, so I think we we were just about released and uh, turned against us. We'd only released one single and done a PO session, uh, and I met him in, in the Rough Trade uh, record shop for the first time, uh, the first time I ever met John. And uh, I mean, I was kind of tongue-tied, and bizarrely, he was as well. Um, <laughs> mm. Very strange. Huh. Um, but he was wearing a, a little rut button. Wow. And he, uh, he pointed this out to me and said, have you heard of these people? 
And I said, well, I've heard the name, I've not actually heard them. Um, and his words to me, his words to me were, well, I think they're probably the next different singles. Now, bear in mind, we've made one single and done one radio session, and I, my first thought went through my mind was, the next different singers, we haven't even been digital singers yet. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but the, again, that was him just questing to find something new all the time, you know? Mm. Mm. Yeah, you guys were really, really lucky. Just and yeah, absolutely. Well, not just us. I mean, you know, so many bands owe him so much. Yeah. When I say you guys, that's actually what I mean. I sort of mean like the right. the UK. Yeah. And and yeah. Uh, I believe that his archives, like they're working on his archives, and they're sort of they're out there for public. Um, I guess on a website or something like that. I read about a, a project. Yeah, I, I've heard something along the, along the lines of there, the, the Joe Peel Presidential Library. He certainly, he certainly deserves something like that. You know? <laughs> More than most presidents, that's for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, I, I, not really my place to say. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. I'll say that. I can take I can take the hit for that. Hey, so um, is um, is do you write everything for the band? Uh, in the main, yeah. I mean, Ian writes the occasional song, but I mean, in, in general, I write most of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, was there um, much of a shift in the writing process when when Ali rejoined? Not really. Um, no, I mean, we just carried on as was, and uh, you know, I mean, the, the thing about the, the other guys is that what they bring to it is is, is uh, sort of the, they just bring musical ideas rather than. Um, you know, the, the lyrical stuff is all completely down to me. So, uh, no, I mean, I didn't sort of try to tailor the material towards Ali's side of the band as opposed to Bruce's or whatever. Bizarrely, when Bruce joined us, I, I did start sort of veering towards, because uh, Bruce brought different things to the table. I mean, Bruce is an incredibly accomplished harmony singer. So, you know, between him and also Ian's an incredibly good harmony singer. So suddenly we had we could do three-part harmony on stage, which we'd never done before. Oh, nice. Um, and uh, but Ali, uh, Ali has many talents, but singing is not one of them. So, <laughs> <laughs> so now, now we're just back to two part harmony again. You know, at least that's not, you know, that's that, that's fine. We can carry that. I mean, in, in the studio, we we can put three part on because Steve can sing. But you know, with the exception of the exception of Doc Henley and Karen Carpenter, singing and playing drums is pretty difficult. So, <laughs> mm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I did. I got to see you with with Bruce some some time back, which was great. Um, can you tell us about the um, the When We Were Young song? Yeah, um, yeah I mean, that, that, it was a song I started to write back in, I think, 1985. Um, I, I mean, it's a story I tell in the introduction to it on, on stage, and it's um, and basically it's, it's, it, it was like a rite of passage that um, if you came from Ireland uh, in a band and moved to London any, at any point between the, the mid-70s and the mid-80s, at some point you were going to run into Phil Liddy and Phil Lizzy. And Phil was, Phil was very, very sociable and always incredibly welcoming to, well, not just Irish bands, but young bands. I mean, he was one of the, he was one of the old guard of, of, of rock stars, if you like, who was actually open, about, open to, to punk rock and, and, and welcomed us in. Yes, he was, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so we you know we became quite friendly. And uh, 1985, like I said, Stephen Fingers had split up, and uh, Lizzy had split up as well. And when we ran into each other just in, in the West End of London in a bar, and at the time we were both being told by the music press that our careers were washed up and finished, and we should just go home. And uh, and we sort of felt commiserating with one another. 
and, and by the end of the night, we were both drunk as skunks and, and sort of, I'd, I'd sort of got more and more depressed as the night had gone on, simply because, you know, going, going around around circles on it. But Phil had gone into drill sergeant mode. He'd gotten sense by the whole thing. And, uh, and so at the end of the night, I got this pep talk. Um, which I think a lot of it was probably aimed at himself as well. I just happened to be the target, you know, so, uh, which was, you know, along the lines of, you know, you shouldn't give up, you should, you know, you can you can put a band back together again, you can write songs, you know, screw the lot of them, we can, we can keep going. And I went home kind of fired up by this and, and sort of drunkenly scribbled down what became the first verse of the song and then promptly forgot about it, of course. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, sadly, Phil passed away about three months after that, that night out, but... Mm-hmm. Um, when we were doing the, uh, the the No Going Back record, as often happens, you know, we book the studio time and you're, you're ready to go in and, and you sort of look at the songs and think, would be nice to have another one, you know, just to either round the whole thing out or, you know, just, you know, some final little sort of garnish on the end of it that's going to keep all the band on their toes, a song that they haven't been playing for a few months. And, and uh, actually, I was about to move, move house um uh, my wife sadly lost her job, and we got we got you know caught up in that whole last recession thing, and uh, and so we had. To, I, I love the the modern term of downsizing, which basically means you're broke and you're just in a smaller apartment. You know, but anyway, um, so we were downsizing, um, and obviously some things had to be thrown out. And, and I was going through. I found a whole bag of old cassette tapes, and I was just basically flicking through them all. And there, on one of the tapes, was this first verse of when we were young, but it was a completely different song then. It was just, it, but it was the first verse, and I, I remember that night out. And, uh, and thought, well, there's definitely, there's something there. Um, so I basically took it down to my little basement studio and, and revamped the, the, the whole tune of it and, and finished it off. So, you know, now it's become, well, not a tribute to Phil, but certainly a, a, at least a, a, not a tip of the hat to his spirit, if nothing else, and that's, that's where the song came from. That's wonderful, and, and so it took almost thirty years for it to see. Yeah, that. I mean, which you know, I mean, people have said, you know, you took ten years between albums the last time. And you're a particularly slow writer, and that's a song I always bring up. That one took me maybe, maybe 40, <laughs> 30 years to write. So yeah, pretty slow. So <laughs> by my standards, that one's pretty slow. <laughs> that's funny. That's great. Um, is there any? Um, well, what I wanted to ask about is is rigid digits. Because um, I guess your first seven-inch was on that. So w- was that self-released? And I guess you're just keeping the name. Yeah, that's all it is. It was just mm-hmm. you know, it was, it, it, that was a, that was another nice sort of just nod to the past. We realized we could do it, and uh, obviously I got in touch with uh, with everybody who'd been involved in that in the past and said, you know, do you mind if we appropriate the name again? Because you know, at the time, Rigid Digits was the original four guys in the band and Gordon, our manager. And I got in touch with everybody, and they were like, "Yeah, sure, fine, go ahead." So, you know, it was it was it was just nice to be able to put it. You know, since we were self-releasing again, it was nice to be able to put it on on that because it looked, you know, it, it it has history, obviously. That is, it's a nice sort of throwback to to yeah. see. Who would you like to give back to? I read something about a per a percentage of uh, no going back did go to some foundation. Yes, it go, it, the, the money went to the Integrated Education Fund in Northern Ireland, and it's a, it's a charity that we still support to this day. I mean, we had, uh, I think the, the shows this year in Belfast and uh, Glasgow have raised over five, six thousand pounds for them. And yeah, we did the same with the, the pledge campaigns we give 
uh, 15% of both pledge campaigns to the to the charity as well. Basically, what it is is obviously going right back to when we were young, to when we were kids. I mean, not the song, going back to when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Um, the main divide, leaving aside the political uh, aspect of it, the main divide in Northern Ireland is a religious one. It's a sectarian divide, and that starts right from when you're born, because you're either born into one enclave or the other, um, and you, you go to either a state school, which tends to be Protestant. Uh, there's no separation between uh, church and state when it comes to schools. You have this religious education, and it's taught from a Protestant bias, or or you go to uh, independent Catholic school. So, you know, there's never uh, never the twain shall meet. And, mm. um, you know, it, it always struck us, particularly Ali and myself coming from Belfast, that that was where the major problem started. I mean, it's the old, you know, the old Jesuit saying of giving me a child until he's seven years old, not having for life. And that's very much the case in in Northern Ireland. So when somebody came up with this idea of integrated education and putting, you know, kids from whatever religion together in a school and just basically teaching them, but not, you know, not teaching them along religious lines, just, just basically giving them an education. And, uh, we thought that was, you know, that, that was a thing worth worth supporting. So that's that's something that we've we've always tried to do. Hmm. That's that's really awesome. And well, I mean, they're the ones doing the work. All we're doing is just bunging them a few a check every so every so often. You know? Well, and you're you're supporting and you're you're saying something about it, and and you've lived that. You know, I mean, I think yeah. that the the impact that Stiff Little Fingers had on kids in Ireland, music is uniting. You would hope so. I mean, that's certainly been the case. And, and that's something we always try to do right from day one in the band. I mean, it's been very easy to play one area or another. And, you know, we've always been appointed to making sure that wherever we play, it's in what could still be identified as a neutral area, so people from both sides of the divide can come. And, uh, and, and of course, once you're actually all in one room, you know, you know, it's not like anybody's walking around with a third eye in the middle of their head, so you can tell which, you know, which religion they are. Yes. Um, although there, although there are some over there who would claim they can't, you know, <laughs> that, you know that. So you know that that was always a big, a big thing for us as well, was to, to you know, sort of make sure that that was the case. And you know, again, right from the early days, the band was made up of people from both sides of the divide, and we never told, we never said who was whom or who came from where. But you know, that was something that we said. You know, as far as we're concerned, there's four guys from Belfast, you know, and at the time also a lot of our road crew were from Belfast. So that made that made the mix even wider, you know. So. At no point did it become, it was never even mentioned whether you were Protestant or Catholic. It was like, you're from Belfast and we're still English. That's it. You've united many, and uh, and thank you for that. You have loyal fans for life. I, I, I was a tattoo artist for 25 years, and I can't tell you how many times, you know, and this is in New Jersey, that I tattooed right. the stiff little fingers flames on people. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, it, I've often said that our audience is, is more like a sports audience than a, than a rock band audience. You know, it's kind of like we're, you know, in, in the same as if you were, you know, a, a New Jersey Devils fan or whatever. You once once you're a Stiff Little Fingers fan, it seems like we're we're their band and they're with us for life, which is is really humbling, you know. Well, I think you've earned that. Well, thank you. That's <laughs> not ready for me to say. You know? <laughs> well, I can say it, and you have earned it, and you've inspired more than one generation, not only in Ireland. So thank you, and I appreciate your your commitment to the live playing. And just being genuine and the longevity of the band. So, well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks very much for your time. Thank okay. you. Bye. And that's all he wrote. Jake Burns, Stiff Little Fingers. 
some useful links. SLF rocks. Actually, it's slf.rocks. And facebook.com slash stifflittlefingers. Find them on Twitter also. Under the handle Rigid Digits. And that concludes another podcast episode. Thanks for tuning in. More on the way. I am Diane Kamikaze. Check my Twitter and Instagram. Handle is one word, Diane Kamikaze. And Kamikaze ends with an E. On Facebook, you can find me as Diane Kamikaze Farris, Rocker for Life. My regular WFMU program right now airs Thursdays, noon to 3 p.m. For an expanded version with lots of music, wisecracks, ticket giveaways, music news, and other fun stuff, check me there. The full link to my index of WFMU programs, including podcasts and regular radio shows, is wfmu.org slash playlists slash DK. That's a capital D and a capital K. I'm going to be working on encore presentations, and I've got years of old interviews and podcasts. So if there is something that you'd like to see reposted, whether you missed it or whether you just loved it and want to hear it again, drop me a line at diane at wfmu.org and request that. Be sure to subscribe to the show if you like it. Please rate it and review it. And there you go, WFMU peer pressure. Thank you. See you next time.